So our scripture reading this morning, still the morning? Yep, for a few minutes anyway. 2 Kings 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19 of 2 Kings 5. It's on the screen. Grab your app or your Bible. Hear the word of God. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and sent ten sets of clothing. The letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robe and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horse and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house, or Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to, to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Now Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he is leaning on, his, on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah said. This is the word of the Lord. Hmm. You know, we do this every week. We should be good at this. Like, you should be expecting it. You should be prepping yourself to hear me say, this is the word of the Lord, so that you can declare. Okay. Um, we're back in our series, uh, of course, the, the G- inspired by the Jesus Storybook Bible, 
and we're looking at these tremendous stories in the Old Testament. I'm enjoying it very much because I've not actually preached on many of these stories before, including this one, this wonderful, wonderful story about Naaman, this Syrian who comes and gets healed of his leprosy um, through the prophet Elisha. And what's interesting about this story is it gives us a picture of what salvation looks like. Now, typically, when you think about how does God save sinners, you might want to go to the New Testament, and understandably so, because there's many examples in Acts and uh, the Gospels of sinners being saved. But the Old Testament has, has examples of the very same thing, and this is one of those examples right here. What we're going to do is we're going to look through this story together, and we're going to see how God saves sinners. Now, this isn't necessarily a textbook example in the sense, or, or a definitive example in the sense that everybody's conversion story has to look exactly the same as this one, but there are elements that we're going to see, elements of how God saves sinner that come up in every person's conversion story. So anybody who has come to faith in Jesus Christ has gone through these things sometime in some way. What are these things? Well, first of all, we're going to see that God wakes them up to a need. Second of all, we're going to see that God breaks them of their pride. Thirdly, we're going to see that God reorients their lives. And fourthly, we're going to see that God enables them to listen to the hero. Those are the four things we're going to see. So let's have a look together. First of all, God wakes us up to our need. How does God save sinners? Well, the first thing he does is he wakes people up to their need. Verse 1 Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Stop right there. We learn a ton about this guy in these few words. Naaman was the second most powerful man in Aram or what what we would call Syria because he was commander of the Lord's army and the army... Uh, the commander of the Lord's army was second in command in the entire nation. That was Naaman. Now, understand that Naaman was also considered a valiant man, according to this passage, which means that he was a tough guy. This, this, he was a skilled uh, military man, and he was a courageous leader. On top of that, we learn just a few verses later that he is also super rich, This guy is part of the elite of society. He's part of the 1%. Maybe he's part of the 0.1%. Now, this is the kind of guy who you kind of like to hate. Rich, successful, powerful. These are the kind of people that we read about in newspapers or watch in news stories, and we kind of go, oh, I don't like that guy. But here's the problem. On top of that, he was also apparently a really great guy. It says that he was highly regarded and a great man. So it seems like he was also, like he had a good reputation, and he's the kind of guy that maybe you would want to be friends with, for example. But here's the problem with Naaman. Naaman had leprosy. One day he woke up, and he checked himself out, and he noticed a spot on his body, just a, just a spot, a white, powdery spot, maybe on his arm, maybe on his legs, maybe who knows where it was. But that white spot was a death sentence to him because you see, leprosy at this time was the most feared disease on the planet. 
It started as a small patch, a small spot, and then it would spread over your body kind of like a rash. And as it spread, one of the things it did was it killed the nerve endings so that you couldn't feel stuff anymore. Can you imagine that? If you can't feel with your fingers or with your toes, you have no feeling in them at all. If you, if you go to scratch your nose, you don't know that you've done it because you can't feel anything. And as time goes on, eventually boils would break out over your body and you would have these wounds, gaping wounds of raw flesh on you. And so over time, as your body literally rotted away, body parts would fall off. And your face would become increasingly distorted and grotesque so that you looked, I don't know, I guess you looked kind of like a a walking zombie. And there was no cure for it at that time. Nobody knew of a way for it to be cured. And it was 100% fatal every time. And it was super duper contagious, or it was believed to be super duper contagious. And therefore, if you got it, you were isolated. From the moment you got it, you were isolated until the time of your death. You were banished to leper colonies where other lepers lived, and that was the only so-called community you had. So here's Naaman with a death sentence on him. And here's what you and I need to realize. We all have this. Because you see, leprosy in Scripture, represents very often sin. And you and, all, you and I are all living with this disease called sin, and it works in our lives a lot like leprosy, in fact. See, when you sin, what sin does is, is it deadens your conscience. It, it, it kind of corrupts your character so that when you sin, it makes it easier for you to sin again and easier for you to sin again and easier for you to sin again and over and over and over again. And you experience more sinful things and you seek out more sinful things and your innocence dies. And in fact, over time, your joy dies and your ability to have compassion on other people begins to die because you're hardening, you see. And the harder you get, the less compassionate you are towards other people. You know where it says in Romans, the wages of sin is death? Paul is talking about two things there. Of course, he's talking about the fact that what you deserve from God in response to to your sin is that he puts you to death. But he's also talking about how the consequences of your sin in your life, in the here and now, leads you towards death. Do you understand? So this is Naaman's life. His physical life is a picture of all of our spiritual lives. And by the way, there's two other things that we learn from this very quickly. First of all, no matter who you are, understand that you are not immune from suffering. No matter how powerful you are or sophisticated you are or how much money you have or how educated you are, or how much planning you do to protect yourself from trouble. You cannot insulate yourself from suffering. Listen, all you control freaks out there, listen very, very carefully. There are people in this room, there are people watching at home. I am actually one of these people. I have to to admit that about myself. You try to prepare for every contingency. 
You try to think out all the scenarios. Now, if this happens, then if I do that, then I can avoid that and I can make that happen. And if this happens, I'll do that. And if this happens, I'll do that. And you're trying to avoid every problem. And you're thinking to yourself, if I just do the right things, then the right things will happen. Things will go right. And the truth of the matter is, that's a complete mirage. It is a fabrication. It is a, it is, I said mirage already, right? Yeah, mirage. It's a good word for it. Naaman was smart. Naaman was educated. Naaman was accomplished. And out of the blue, out of the blue, he discovers he's dying. Because the second thing we see here, obviously, is that there are things that are utterly outside of our control that will hit us. They are spots that show up in our lives, okay? Here's, here's a dad who is doing great at work, who is just killing it there, building his business, or really, you know, making his employer super happy, bringing home the bacon, and he's got a great relationship with his wife, and that's going well, and he's doing awesome with his friends, and he's been exercising regularly, so he looks pretty good too, and he's feeling healthy and feeling strong, but then he's got, he's got one child who's going off the rails, And it does not matter what he does. It does not matter if how much time he has spent with this kid, how much time he has invested in this kid, how much he tells this kid, I love them, no amount of discipline, no amount of cajoling, no amount of of bribing, no amount of threatening, no amount of yelling, no amount of pleading, no amount of crying, no amount of praying seems to have any effect on them. It's completely outside their control. And here's a a woman who's doing great at work and has great relationships with her friends and all her kids love her and her house looks spectacular and every time she hosts, people say, my, what a beautiful place you have and you're such a wonderful cook and we always have such a good time here. And her marriage isn't necessarily falling apart. It's not dissolving completely, but it's floundering and it's certainly not flourishing. And no amount of pleading, no amount of approaching, no amount of patience, no amount of gentleness, no amount of of anything seems to impact her hard-hearted husband or her cold-hearted husband. Spots come into our lives and we have absolutely no control over them. Maybe it's a a habit that you can't break. Maybe it's a paralyzing fear that you live with each and every day. Maybe it's a guilt for something that you've done in your past that you simply cannot let go of. You're like Macbeth's wife. Remember when when King Duncan was killed and she, she said, out, out, damn spot, as she was washing her hands, furiously trying to get it off, and it never, ever, ever worked. You got a spot, friends. But here's the question, what's the, what's, what's, what are you going to do with the spot? How are you going to respond to the spot? Because you see, God has given this spot to Naaman to wake him up to his need. And every spot you hold on to, every spot you recognize in your life is meant to wake you up to your need too. That's point one. Point two 
He doesn't just wake you up to your need, but he also breaks you of your pride. And he does this with Naaman in a pretty funny way. Naaman hears that healing is possible. It's like, whoa, there's a cure out there? Unbelievable. And he says, okay, where is it? And he finds out, well, the cure is in Israel. And he's like, oh, I can't believe it. Of all the places. This is an inferior culture. They're backwater, okay? These people, they don't know how to do things right, like we Syrians do. But he says, okay, well, if I got to go there, I'll go there. So he goes to his king and he says, okay, this is what I heard. Can I go? King says, yeah, I'll write you a letter. Send it with you to the king. It'll grease the wheels for you. And Naaman says, all right. And he takes the letter and then he takes all this treasure. Now, the treasure that he took was probably more than the riches in all of Israel. And they were his personal treasure. This wasn't the king's treasure. So Naaman was an incredibly filthy rich guy. He takes all this money and we read that he takes 10 sets of clothing too. And it's funny, right? You read that and you go, now why do you include the clothing thing? And here's why. Naaman, um, back then, clothing was handmade. All clothing was handmade. So it was actually pretty expensive clothing. And so most people, the vast majority of people, you had one set of clothing. Kids, can you imagine? You had one sweater you have one pair of pants. Maybe you even have underwear. I don't know. But you only got one. And your mom is always telling you, change your underwear every day. Back then, you changed your underwear never. And a guy like Naaman had 10 sets of clothing. Not just clothing, but this was special clothing. This was party clothing. This was dress-up clothing. This is the kind of clothing that you put on if you're going to a wedding or you're going uh, out for dinner with your family to a really fancy restaurant back in the olden days. This is what he had. And he had 10... It's like like he had countless Gucci shirts. Apparently a Gucci t-shirt is 500 bucks. Did you know that? So this guy is rich. This guy has a ton of treasure, and he goes off to the king of Israel, and he presents himself there, and he says, hey, I am here as a very important person coming to you, obviously a very important person, we're two very important people, and I need an important thing done, I need to be healed of my leprosy. And the king freaks out and says, oh no, oh no, oh no, I I know what's happening. This guy has been sent by the king of Syria because he's trying to start another war. Because I can't heal him. Do I have the power over life and death? Remember, everybody knew that leprosy was fatal. You get leprosy, you're dead, there's no cure. And it's at that moment that Elisha chimes in. And Elisha says, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And keep, a, keep that... He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Send him to me because I want him to know that there is a prophet in Israel. Just keep that in your head because that's going to be important in a few minutes. And so, uh, what happens? So Naaman goes with his motorcade, right? He's got like a train of SUVs and chariots and stuff. And off he goes to Elisha's house. And uh, he shows up there with his entourage. And Elisha's sitting in his house. And rather than come out and speak to him, he sends his servant. He sends the intern out to go talk to him. And, you know, I'm just playing with the, the image a little bit, but, you know, you can, you can picture Naaman. He's, like, standing out front of this little hut where Elisha lives, and he looks in the window, and he sees Elisha with his feet up on his table, and he's drinking tea and smoking his pipe and reading a book, and he's like, the guy won't even come out and talk to me. Sends his little servant out to see me. And of all the things this servant says is, go wash in the Jordan River. 
Now he's mad. Verses 11 and 12. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He's so mad. He's like, I can't believe how I'm being treated. Where's the ceremony? Where's the smoke machine? And Elisha comes out of his house and he does this chant and we've got drummers over here banging away and he, and he comes up to me and you know he even says why he would wave his hand over me and we'd do some like do some like I don't know like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom kind of thing over my my body and and I would be miraculously healed and I'm getting none of that and on top of it he tells me that I should go to the Jordan River which is 25 kilometers out of the way and by the way is not a very impressive body of water it's like the slow moving parts of Spencer Creek you ever go to Spencer Creek by Coots Paradise over there you know where the where the, the bridge goes over just before you head up towards McMaster Hospital there. Jess and I, once we went to kayaking down Spencer's Creek into Coots Paradise, and that's where we went into the water, and it was so disgusting there. Oh, man. You get this black mud, and it stinks, and the water is all scudsy looking, and it's got, uh, mo- not moss, what's that called? Uh, help me out, you people who know this stuff. Huh? Algae, all this algae growing all over it, and it's gross. So here, so here he's being told to go to this small, sludgy, stinky, dirty river, and he's furious, and he leaves. Now, why? Why did he leave? Here's why. He was too proud to receive the healing that was offered to him. Like, he came looking for healing, and that's what he wanted, right? But... He was too proud to receive the healing that was offered to him because it wasn't offered to him in a way that a man of his stature thought he should receive it. Wash. In that dump, that's all I have to do is wash. Anybody can do that. A kid can wash. A a weakling can wash. An immoral person. a, A poor person. A nobody. A prostitute. There's no difference between any of those people and me. You don't see who I am and how important I am. You're God. He has no standards. That's what Naaman's thinking. And so he leaves in a huff. I'm out of here. Forget it. And I'm taking my stuff with me. And then his servants come to him and they say, well, what's the big deal? Why don't you just do it? Like if, if Elisha had said, do something unbelievable. I'm sending you on a quest. I want the feather of a phoenix and I want the tongue of a dragon, and I want the horn of a unicorn in order for me to heal you of your leprosy. You would have done it. All he's saying is dunk in this dinky little body of water. We'll swing by on the way home. Give it a try. If it works, fine. If it doesn't work, we'll come back with an army and we'll beat him good. Teach him a lesson. How's that sound? Naaman says, okay. So here he is. He comes up to the, to the water. He comes up to the river. And I'm just picturing myself when I had to get into the creek by Coots Paradise there. I think Jessica slipped on the mud. You know how the mud is really slippery? And, you, and then your hand goes down in it and you're like, all this black mud. I see him walking in there and he's like, okay. And he goes, bruh, bruh. nothing. Bruh, bruh. Nothing. 
Oh, I got some up my nose. Gross. Now he goes up a third time. Nothing. Now he's looking at his servants. This is ridiculous. They say, no, 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 just keep going, keep going. Four times. Still nothing. I'm not doing this. This is absolutely foolish. No, 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 you're almost there. Do it again, do it again. Boom, boom, five times. See, I told you this was a waste of time. Boom, boom, six times. This is the stupidest thing in the world. Boom, boom, I'm going to kill those. And he's clean. It says that his skin was like a newborn baby's. You know newborn baby's skin, eh? It's the best. Smells good. And it's soft and it's tight and it's not drooping anywhere. It's kind of unfair, right? The people with the best skin don't realize they have the best skin and don't care. This is what happened to Naaman. Now, why? I know there's stuff about the number seven and perfect and completion and all that kind of stuff, but I really think that it's just because every time he had to do it, God was pounding into him again and again and again and again. You don't do anything for your salvation, Naaman. All you need is need. Most people don't have it, you know. This is the gospel. See, if you go to the cross of Jesus Christ and you say to God before the cross, God, how am I doing? He holds up the cross in front of you as his answer. And he says, here's how you're doing. It does not matter how good you are. It does not matter how often you come to church during COVID. It does not matter how much money you give to ministries. It does not matter how much time you give to volunteering. It does not matter how well you treat your employees. It does not matter how you make sure you pay every dime of your taxes. It does not matter if you shovel your neighbor's driveway when it's snowing. It does not matter if you mow their lawn when it's nice out or help them with their groceries or whatever. It does not matter how good you are. Whatever you bring to God and say, How am I doing? His answer is, the verdict on your life is death. That's what you deserve. It's the most humbling message on the planet. What we deserve is death. See, the gospel says you need to look outside for help. And the thing you're looking for is grace. Grace. Now listen, you can, you can resist grace even if you're a believer, guys. I'm assuming the, the vast majority of us in here are Christians. But I want to make sure that you're listening right now because... You can be a Christian and you can resist grace too. Because grace means you're needy. Grace means you're desperate. Grace means you've got nothing. You can't solve your problem yourself. You have to look outside of yourself and all you can do is receive what God is giving you. That's what grace is. And you can be a believer and resist grace because you hate feeling needy. Even though you're a Christian, you still feel, you still hate feeling needy. 
I cannot tell you the number of times I've walked into a family situation. I get a phone call from someone, you got to come down here, preacher or pastor, and you got to help us out. And you walk into this place and all hell is broken loose in this family. And you start to hear what's going on and, and, and you discover that, you know what, this has been a long time coming. This disaster didn't start yesterday. This has been going on for years and it's been building and it's been building and it's been building. And people know, the friends know, the family know, people know, the pastor doesn't know, but all those people know, nobody says anything, nobody does anything until it absolutely explodes. And you think to yourself, I have thought to myself, if they just would have dealt with this earlier, if they would have admitted this problem sooner, if they would just said... If they would have faced it sooner, so much heartache could be avoided. But why didn't they do that? It's because they were not strong enough to be weak. Let that sink in. Are you strong enough to be weak? Are you strong enough in the grace of God that that everything good about you has been given to you by Him so that everything bad about you, you can be open and honest about it and just lay it on the line? I mentioned the Samson Society a few minutes ago, right? Well, this is a place where guys can be strong enough to be weak, where against a bunch of other guys, they they can sit around and they can be strong enough to be weak in front of one another. Because we live in a society that refuses to let us be strong enough to be weak. That's point two. Point three, God reorients your life. Now, verse 15 is really interesting. (laughs) Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That is an astounding statement. Naaman was a polytheist, okay? It means he believed in many gods, just like in our culture today. And you say, what? Our culture is polytheistic? I thought it was atheistic. Oh, no, 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 no. It's polytheistic. People believe in all kinds of stuff. People believe in God. People believe in crystals. People believe in the power of positive thinking. People believe in Tony Robbins. People believe in all kinds of stuff. And that's the normal way that human beings operate. But here's this guy who lives in a, in a secular, or sorry, a polytheistic culture saying not to Elisha, wow, I have discovered that your God is like uber-duber strong and by the way, you're a pretty amazing magician with that little trick you did and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Oh no, that's not what he says at all. He says, now I know that there is no God except God. One God, the true God, that's it. How unbelievably politically incorrect in that culture but in our culture as well. See, he went for a cure for his leprosy, which he got, but what he found actually was God. He was cured of his false beliefs. Remember earlier I said that Elisha said to the king, hey, send him here so that he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. What he meant by that was he will be reoriented to know that there is a true God who is living and breathing and active and alone reigns over this universe. That's what Elisha was after in the healing all along. The leprosy was a bad thing, but his false understanding of God was way, 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 way worse. That's why when Naaman says, oh, this is unbelievable, can I give you a gift just to say thank you? Elisha says, no, I won't take a thing. First time in the world, probably ever, that a minister didn't take a gift. 
He would have been the richest man in all of Israel. And he says, no, why? Because he, he wanted Naaman and everyone who was witnessing this to realize you cannot buy your salvation. It can never, ever be earned. It has to be received. Naaman was reoriented right there in the moment, and he acted on that reorientation. You're asking yourself, I hope some of you are asking yourself, have I, has, have I met God? Has he, has he done something in me so that I am a believer? Here's how you know. Are you acting on the reorientation? Because Naaman does. He says to Elisha this weird thing. He says, can I take a bunch of dirt back with me? Because I only want to sacrifice to the true God. So what he's planning to do is take a bunch of dirt back and then build an altar on that dirt so that he can say, I'm worshiping in Israel from far away. It's a totally made-up thing. Nobody told him he had to do that. The Old Testament doesn't require that at all, but he wanted to do that. And it just shows you that he doesn't really quite understand what's going on, but he is learning And he is oriented the right way. He wants to worship only the true God. Same thing when he says, ask for permission basically to be a coward. (laughs) He's like, look, my king's going to tell me to walk him into uh, into the temple and help him worship in the temple of Rimon. Um, Please forgive me when I do that. Maybe he's being a little bit cowardly. Maybe he's actually actually asking how he can be truly faithful, okay? Maybe, but the reality is, is either way, it shows that his faith is imperfect. But Elisha says, okay. Okay. He doesn't get all worked up. He doesn't say, you've got to carry your cross for Jesus, and now you've got to do everything right. Look, you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that the Eminem songs on your playlist automatically delete themselves the next morning. Why did I choose Eminem? I don't know. Like, when I was a younger that was the bad guy so that's why i'm using him you start as a baby everybody whether you're 50 or 5 when you come to faith in jesus christ you start as a spiritual baby and babies do what babies do they drool they cry they whine when they start moving they start breaking things and naaman was a baby in his faith but he was on the right path because he was reoriented are you reoriented that's the question and last thing very quickly god enabled him to listen to the hero now this could have been part this could have been the first point of the sermon but i decided to make it the last point of the sermon who's the hero of this story we're always looking for the hero right who's the hero of this story is it elisha nope Look at verse 3 and 4. No, look at verse 2 and 3. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. All right, stop there for a second. Who's this girl? She's probably somewhere between 10 to 13 years old. Her parents were probably killed in front of her by the raiders that came. And uh, what else? Her siblings, if she had any, were either killed or were also taken off to become slaves somewhere. And she becomes a slave to Naaman's wife. And she is at the absolute bottom of society. She is the wrong race. She is the wrong gender because she's a girl. She's the wrong class because she's a slave. And she's also the wrong age because she's a little kid. And nobody had respect for little kids back then. Her life was at a complete dead end. And why was her life at a complete dead end? Naaman. 
He was the commander of the army that raided and killed her people and drove her into, took her off into slavery. But then we read in verse 3, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Listen, she's in the house of the very guy who has completely destroyed her life and put a death sentence over it, and she finds out she, he has leprosy. And what does she say? She does not say, <laughs> I'm going to watch this guy rot to death in agony, and I'm going to love every minute of it. And then I'm going to dance on his grave. No. She shows, she shows compassion. She shows forgiveness. She shows sacrifice. Through no fault of her own, she suffered. But her suffering brought his salvation. Because without her, he doesn't ever hear about Elisha and the prospect of being healed. In other words, she's a suffering servant. And then she spoke the words of salvation to him. And he believed her and was saved. Every story whispers his name. Isn't it beautiful? Centuries later, Jesus came into this world and he was our suffering servant. Through no fault of his own, he suffered. We caused his suffering. But did he hate us in response? No. He forgave us and he loved us. And his suffering became our salvation. Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. the greatest hero of the story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, the hero of the story. Father, we pray for all of us that we will look to the spot in our lives as a sign that we desperately need you and that we will be humbled to the point where we are strong enough to be weak. And that we would be reoriented to follow you and give you the supremacy in all that we do as we listen to our King, our hero, our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.